Our scripture reading this morning is found in Genesis 14. We're going to begin there, and then we're going to move over to Psalm 110. So first off, in Genesis 14. Thank you, worship team. Beginning at verse 17, Abraham is returning from, from battle. After his return from the defeat of Shedrlamur and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered our enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the man who went with me, that Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Turn over to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the psalm that is behind much of the, what is written in the book of Hebrews. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the father speaking to the son in Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Our text this morning is in Hebrews chapter 7, if you, 6 and 7, if you would turn there. In the book of Hebrews, we'll begin in chapter 6. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, help us to understand as mature, uh, mature people of God, welcoming your truth and give us understanding of the story of Christ that is unfolded before us this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I swear 
to God. Many say this, they have no belief in God. I swear to God. Many say it lightly, or they use it as cover for their lies. I swear to God. But I swear to God is actually an ancient, serious practice. It's called an oath. In oral cultures, most of history was oral cultures, there was no hall of records. There was no municipal office to go and check your deed. There was no verbal oaths then became very, very serious, very important. A verbal oath was declaring the truth of a statement by calling on a deity to penalize you in judgment if you didn't meet the terms of the agreement. It was used in treaties. It was used in land purchases. It was used in all sorts of legal arrangements throughout history. I swear to God. Now, the practice of taking an oath still lingers on in our culture, particularly in our courtrooms in Canada. I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. That's taking an oath. God swears to God. Look at verse 13 of chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. You see, God swears to God because who is greater than God? No one, none above him, none before him, we just sang. Who is greater than him? He is God, there's no other. There's none like him. And he swore this saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. With an oath. No one is above God. God swore by himself. It's a double witness that is presented to us. It, there's the witness of his promise to Abraham he makes his promise, verse 14, I will bless you and multiply you. And then there is the witness of his oath. I swear by myself I will do this. I will accomplish my purposes. And God cannot lie. His promise and his oath. He would see to it that Abraham would have an offspring, a people, a land, but why tell us about Abraham and God's oath to himself 
for Abraham. Well, that's where he takes us in verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which is it impossible for God to lie, we, now it's the church of Christ, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It says in verse 19, we have this as sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner of our, on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. So he's saying, look at what this means for us is that God keeps his promises. He backs it up with an oath to himself. He swears to himself, for there was no one higher than himself. And this is an anchor to our soul, verse 19 it says. It's sure and steadfast anchor, this certainty, this hope. Our salvation's based on a commitment made by God and backed up by his oath. It's not conditional. It's not a bargain that he makes. It's a solid hope. And then we find that our hope is not a feeling. Our hope is actually a person, Jesus Christ himself. He tells us of Christ that Christ has entered the veil, verse 20, where Christ has gone into that inner place behind the curtain, verse 19. A hope that enters in, you see. Jesus entered into the inner place. This is a reference to the veil in the temple that held what was before the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. He's saying, Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary went in beyond the veil as our high priest to intercede for us. He alone could do it by way of his sacrifice and by way of his sinlessness, his righteousness. Jesus has gone there, and he's gone there as a forerunner. This word forerunner was a military Roman word, and it means sending forth a scout who had something to do. He sent a scout. The armies would send scouts ahead to find a place to camp, and they would begin to prepare the camp for the arrival of the army. It has a sense of Jesus saying, I go to prepare a place for you. And a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the order of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament, but after the order of Melchizedek. He entered there into that holy of holies. He has access and he intercedes for us on the basis of his sacrifice made on the cross for our sins. So he's saying our, our, our hope lies behind the veil because this is where Jesus is. Jesus is our hope and we will be eternally with Jesus. He said that where I am, there you may be also. And so be certain, he says, be encouraged, be steadfast, just as God took an oath and gave a promise to Abraham, so he does for us. And this is the anchor of our soul, this certain hope, Jesus the Christ. 
Now, we've all crossed over bridges. A bridge takes us from one side and crosses us over to another place. And that's what this passage on Abraham has done for us. It's a bridge to get us to the person of Melchizedek. It ends at the end uh, that he is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now he will go on and review in a very long sentence, four verses is one sentence in the Greek, the historical account of Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek, and which is found in Genesis 14. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, which would be Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days, no end of life, but resembling the son of God. He continues a priest forever. It's a long sentence. Melchizedek. Try spelling that 40 times. Nobody names their child Melchizedek anymore, like ever, <laughs> right? That's a hard name. But it means something, he tells us here. It's powerful because it means king of righteousness, he tells us in verse 2. And he's also the king of Salem, that is king of peace. Hmm. And he resembles Christ. It's not that Christ is like Melchizedek, but that Melchizedek has some things about him that teaches us about Christ. Now, he uses the fact that Melchizedek, the history in Genesis, gives no pedigree, there's no genealogy, there's no history of his background whatsoever. Pedigree was everything to the Jewish people. It was so important to the Levitical system. You had to be of the tribe of Levi to be a priest of God. In the Aaronic priesthood. But here it's not about who you came from at all. His pedigree is being underlined that is not known. He had parents, but they're not known who they were. He had grandparents, they're not recorded. He was born, we don't know when. He died, there's no marker of his death. And so the writer wonderfully uses this now as an illustration or a metaphor of the Son of God. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, he resembles the Son of God. That's a term of deity, the second person of the Trinity. And so the story of Melchizedek is interpreted to understand the story of Christ. And the, the greatness of Melchizedek is underlined, but then points us to how much more is the greatness of Christ and how different it is from the Levitical system that we're so familiar with, with Israel and in the Old Testament. 
and the priest of the law, the human priest. No beginning. Righteous. King of peace. No end. (laughs) And so then he will make frequent reference again to Psalm 110. Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He says in verse 4, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. So there's Levi in the Aaronic priesthood, he says. But look at verse 7 now. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. The inferior is blessed by the superior. Verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. Wow. What he's saying is, the blessing given uh, by Melchizedek to Abraham, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, the inferior Abraham is blessed by the superior Melchizedek. And he's saying tithes are the same way, the giving of resources, that the tithe of the spoils given to Abraham or given by Abraham to Melchizedek is an expression of one who is inferior giving the superior Melchizedek that offering. So Melchizedek's life becomes an illustration of Christ. And if Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood, then Christ's priesthood is superior to all. And the back context, of course, is the, the readers of the book of Hebrews, they're thinking of leaving Christianity and going back to what they had before. And what he's saying is, you want to go back? Chapter 1, you want to go back to angels? Christ is better than the angels. You, you, you want to go back to Abraham? Christ is better than Abraham. You want to go back to Moses? Christ is better than Moses. You want to go back to Joshua? Christ is superior to Joshua. You want to go back to Aaron and the Levitical worship system and the priests and the priesthood? Christ's priesthood is far superior than that priesthood. Christ's priesthood is in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of the Aaronic priesthood. He says in verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. In other words, if you could be saved through the priests of the Old Testament, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise from the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? See, what he's asking is... uh, If the Levitical system of priests and sacrifices was enough to save us from our sins, was enough to make us acceptable to God, why was Messiah not a Levitical priest? Why would God in the 
prophecy say Messiah would be in the order of Melchizedek? The, the answer is it was insufficient. The law and the Levitical priests could not save. It's like saying our works cannot save us. Working our way into God's good graces, working our way, trying to be this, trying to be that, will never be enough. And so he says in verse 18, look there, turn over to verse 18. He says, for on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The Mosaic law couldn't save us. The Levitical priesthood couldn't save us. It couldn't cover our sins. Only Jesus has the power to change human life, to change human, human hearts. Only Jesus has a priesthood that's dependent on his person, not his pedigree, because he is the son of God. And so this priesthood is indestructible, he says. Look at verse 16. He's become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. It wasn't because of his pedigree, but because of who he was before and after the Son of God, indestructible life, risen from the dead. And so he says in verse 18, Jesus is our better hope. And as we've read, he's our anchor of hope. Jesus is our anchor of hope through whom we draw near to God. He repeats that in verse 19. He says, through whom, through which we draw near to God. We, only in the Levitical system, only the high priest could go in. But here we are welcome to draw near to God in the priesthood of Melchizedek because of Christ. The law, great as it was intended for, was never enough. Works will never save us. We are sinners who need God to save us. And so trying to be a good person will never be enough. We need a savior who makes us perfect and makes us complete in every way. And with Christ and his Melchizedekian priesthood, everything is done, everything is complete. Nothing added, nothing needed. God has taken an oath. He has sworn to himself to see our salvation done. And through him, we draw near to God. Abraham Lincoln is quoted as saying these words. You don't change horses in midstream. But of course, what if your horse is broken down? What if your horse can't get you to shore? Here we're shown that there is someone to see us safely across to God. Someone who's great and someone who's eternal. Someone who is resurrected. Someone who sacrificed his life for our sins. Someone who is the very son of God and whose priesthood goes back before 
Moses. It's eternal. And someone who can see you safely into the kingdom of God. And the readers here have converted to Christ. And what he's saying is there's no turning back. Don't turn back because where would you go? Christ is exalted. Christ is magnified. Christ is elevated. All else is less than him. And so God swears. We come full circle to this. He swore an oath to himself. In chapter 7, look there. In chapter 7, verse 20. And it was not without an oath. Ah, He's speaking of Jesus here. It was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, that's Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, he's now quoting Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, God has sworn to himself to see our salvation done. And so he says in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, a covenant of promise in Jesus Christ, unconditional. Christ is the guarantor of the Father's oath and his promise to us. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. In other words, the the lot of man is to live and to die. And he says there's an awful lot of priests in the Levitical system because as the time passed, they would die and new ones appointed. But he holds his priesthood, that is Christ, permanently because he continues forever. (laughs) An eternal priesthood. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, completely He's able to save you completely. Those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, our priest, high priest, Jesus Christ, in the order of Melchizedek, will not be on vacation. He will not get sick and he will not die and need to be replaced. He will not compromise his position He will not take advantage of his position as priests have done, or he will not abandon his own flock. He is in heaven for us, and he has no successor in heaven or on earth. There's only one savior for the human race, and that is the son of God, the one the father sent in the order of Melchizedek. He is who can save us, to the uttermost. (laughs) He's in heaven for us and he saves us completely, which the law could never do, which our works will never do. And so he sums up in verse 26, he says, for if it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, 
holy, innocent, unstained. Those three adjectives are quite rare in the Greek, underlining his uniqueness and his exalted state, his purity, holy, innocent, unstained. And then he says it separated from sinners. That is, he had no sin. So he could die for our sin, taking our sins on himself and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Yeah. He's not like the Levitical priesthood. The, high, the priests had to offer sacrifice for their own sins. Jesus didn't. He was sinless. He's underlining the superiority of Christ. He's elevating Christ in our eyes. And his never-ending ministry. If you've ever been on a mountain or on top of a skyscraper, perhaps, and you look down, you see a great deal. It's something special up there. And what the writer would have us see is there's only one person up there, and that's Jesus the Christ. But he is high and he is lofty, and all else is down here. And through his sacrifice alone, once given, never needing repeating, never needing to happen day after day after day, once for all, sufficient his sacrifice because he's the son of God. We don't need human priests. We have Christ. Now, I grew up in a religious system that had men that were called priests. They, we were taught, stood between us and God. They would hear my sins and take them to God. And they would offer sacrifice on the altar day after day to bring me to God. Everything was in the hands of the priest. I even promised God I would be a priest in a youthful grand bargain that I made. In mercy, he showed me there's only one priest that I need and there's only one priest that you need. The priest who is in the order of Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ, high priest. He alone intercedes for you and by his sacrifice alone are we saved to the uttermost. And through him alone, can we draw near to the Father? One priesthood saves us. There's only one priesthood that makes sacrifice for sins that saves us completely. So whatever you may be trusting in this morning to see you across to the shore of heaven, whatever you're trusting in to take you to heaven, to make you acceptable to God. 
probably it's going to be your goodness or your efforts to be good. Probably it's going to be that you're not as bad as some other person that you know. Probably it's going to be that you're just taking your chances or you're not giving much thought to it at all. Whatever it is, uh, there is only Jesus. And you will find in your effort to get to the shore of heaven that you are swamped, you are flooded, and you are overwhelmed in time. The flood of judgment is going to come upon you because our sins need punishment. And that's why Jesus bore your sins on the cross. And he suffered there and died with your sins. He was there in your place with your sins. That you might be free of your sins and free to walk in newness of life and free to, free to go through life knowing that you've been Saved by Jesus. Only Jesus will draw you near to God. Only Jesus will see you safely through. And so be converted to Christ. Be forgiven by Christ. Follow Christ in your life. His sacrifice washes away your sin and is able to save you, as the scripture says here in verse 25, to the uttermost. There's no, nothing beyond that. It's as far as you can go, the uttermost. And so he finishes in verse 28. He says, for the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priest. But the word of the oath, this is the God swearing by himself. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, he's speaking of Psalm 110, appoints a son. I swear, he says, he takes an oath. You are a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. <laughs> Notice here the difference between men as high priests and the Son of God as high priest. God swears to himself. He will see our salvation done. He will see his promises fulfilled. You know, there is a lot of talk today about freedom. Our freedom is in Jesus Christ. His truth sets us free. Our hope is in Jesus. He is our hope. And there is much talk about rights these days. And our right, the only right that matters, is we have the right to be called children of God. And as the scripture says, we will endure anything rather than put an obstacle in in the way of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And this is why Jesus was able to say that he would proclaim good news to the poor, 
Proclaim liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed. He's saying, look, whatever condition in life, you can be free, free in Christ. Brothers and sisters, lift high his name in your heart, in your mind. Exalt him. Enjoy him. Draw near to the Father through him. And hold on to him steadfast and sure. He is your anchor in all the storms that are blowing around us. And our anchor is sure. God has taken an oath. He has sworn by himself to see it done. Would you bow in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his ministry of reconciliation, his position as high priest. He's gone into that heavenly holy of holies we pray Lord that we would magnify his name that we would lift him in our hearts and minds and not degrade him that even our own desire to be holy and righteous in our choices each day and each moment would honor him and please him. We thank you for our salvation, saved to the uttermost by this king of righteousness, this king of peace. Father, if there's any here who doesn't know him, who is trusting in their own works, in their own efforts, in their own goodness, bring conviction of their inability to reach the eternal shore of their sin that is serious before you. Help them feel it. Help them know it. And how much they too need a Savior. And that the Savior, the only Savior by which we must be saved is Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we pray together and here at People's Church, and we exalt him. And may he be set before us in our vision at all times and in our heart. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.